Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, today is uh, Membership Sunday. For those of you who are new, what that means is today we're going to be welcoming uh, new members into our congregation. People have been attending our church for some time, um, at least six months, and, and they've decided to kind of throw out the anchors into the deep and say, we're going to commit our lives here uh, to membership at Harvest. We're going to, um, I, I joke with them during our membership interview, and I tell them, hey, in signing this covenant, you are signing your life away in blood so that whatever our church needs, even if it means landscaping ministry that you say I do. And so we embrace the call of God in the lives of these folks. Um, in order to be a member, one of the requirements, in addition to having uh, attended our church and faithful attendance for a certain number of, of months, uh, one of the things that they need to do, uh, interview with me, but also uh, we go through a, what's called Harvest 101. That's our, our Meet Harvest class. We, we talk about uh, what's in the DNA of our church? What are we all about? Um, it's our meat harvest. It's our this, 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 this is us class uh, for three weeks. We talk who we are and, and to make sure, hey, if you, uh, just as much as you may not want to be part of us, we may not want you to be part of us also if you don't uh, understand all that we are. And so uh, we welcome these people in. And one of the things that we talk about during Harvest 101 is the fact that we as a congregation are, and, and, and our brother Eugene talked about this, we are intentional about being intergenerational. What that means is there's young people and then there's younger people than that, and we all worship together in this, uh, in this environment. It's been that way for about 15 years. 15 years ago, uh, we made a very intentional choice to say, hey, um, even though there may not be many adults right now, here's our dream that one day adults and children would be worshiping together. And this is our dream that one day families will be worshiping together. I you may have heard me say this, but uh, I, I kind of had this like, moment with my oldest daughter, Manny. She's seven now. She just finished first grade. And I started counting down the years, and now it, within four years, she's going to be worshiping with us here. And I said, Manny, are you so excited to worship uh, with Harvest? Are you so excited to be with us and to, to worship and have Daddy be your pastor at home and at church? And she said, no. <laughs> Daddy, your sermons are so boring. I'm not ready for that yet. So... She may not be excited, but I'm excited because this is our dream. Right? This is our dream. We decided about 15 years ago that we want to be countercultural as a church in uniting families and generations together, which wasn't popular at the time. In fact, in those days, the great aim of most Asian American churches was we want to segregate and compartmentalize so that in age and life stage specific ministries, we can do our thing. And so what we were doing was not popular. Nobody was tweeting about it. Nobody, <laughs> Twitter wasn't even around back then, but it wasn't popular. It wasn't trending. No one was talking about it. But can I say we didn't do it to be popular and we didn't do it to be practical. In fact, it was increasingly Im impractical to do it that way. But we did it because of principle. Because as we searched the scripture, this is what we felt to be the most viable expression of the church, an international and intergenerational congregation that God's heart beats for certain things. It beats for the salvation. It beats for the nations. It beats for the generations. beats for certain things. And we said, that's what we want to be about. We don't want to be about the kind of church that we read about who says, I think this is what church ought to be about. We looked through the scriptures and said, this is what we deem, we think the church ought to be like. And maybe this isn't the way it should be for everybody, but we feel like for us, in being faithful to scripture in our time and in our place and where we are, uh, this is what God has called us to be. And so for the past 15 years, this has been us and this is us and this will continue to be us. And so as we welcome new members in and as we remind those of us who are members and for those of you who are still checking us out and you're not sure if this is where you want to be, I want to talk about 
uh, this simple idea, because we've been walking through Hebrews 11, and we've been talking about, so what if we have faith? On Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we talked about the benefits of faith and why faith is absolutely essential. And then starting after Easter, we talked about, so what? So what if you have faith? What does that mean? <clears throat> there are a lot of us who have brains, but we don't know how to use them. <laughs> a lot of people who have muscles, but we don't do anything with them. We just kind of like look nice, but the same thing can be true about faith. What do we do with the faith that we have? Faith only is faith if it expresses itself in action. And so we've been looking at Hebrews 11, looking at these men and women of faith and seeing what is it that makes faith work. And so we come to this place in Hebrews 11 today where it talks about how faith necessitates an intergenerational compassion and longing uh, to see generations worship the Lord together. Hebrews 11, verses 20 uh, through 22. This is the Word of God, again, for the people of God. Uh, and then we're going to kind of talk about this and unpack it before we hear from uh, some of our members. Verse 20, this is God's Word. It says, By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, okay, his sons, in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. This is God's word. The author of Hebrews, just real quick, talks in, in, in a sentence about each of these guys in two sentences, one sentence, a run-on sentence at the end. But he talks about one sentence about each of these patriarchs, and he doesn't go into their stories or true stories very deeply because he's writing, remember, who is he writing Hebrews to? He's writing to Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews. And as he writes to them about the patriarchs of their Hebrew faith and of their lineage, the assumption is that they know about the history of their people. And so this is why he doesn't go too in-depth about it. And I'm not going to go too deep into it. We're going to kind of do a flyover and, and look at this passage and try to understand what the author of Hebrews is trying to say uh, back then and what he's trying to say to us here. Three thoughts about the generations. First thing, first thing is this. Faith okay, uh, understands that the most important thing that we pass on, okay, the most important, faith is the most important inheritance that we pass on to the next generation. Okay. Uh, faith is the most important thing that we could pass on to the next generation. I, my parents are, are, are still alive and uh, when they got married, they were not actually believers. Um, they came to, to know the Lord sometime later. But I think about um, as they get older and as they, um, yeah, as they get older, as we all do, no one gets younger unless you're Benjamin Button, but we all get older. And as I think about my parents getting older, I think about what is it that they left behind to my brother and me. I think about the inheritance that they would leave behind and what I would think about, what I would remember, what I would hold as an heirloom uh, from my parents. I think about times when I was little and, and after my, my, my father, my mother, my mom and dad became followers of Christ, how it was testimonies of God working miracles in their lives that they would constantly tell me about. They would say, Mom was this sickly and, and God provided healing and Dad was in this condition and he did these substances and all of these things and, and by the grace of God he stopped and, and they were constantly telling me stories of faith and it got to a point when I was a kid that they were constantly telling me, you know, if anything happens, if any trouble happens, if you get sick, if there's a if anything uh, you need to pray about, it, you need to pray about it. So I would go to my parents sometimes and I would tell them that there's something wrong with me and then they would say, let's pray. 
There was a, a season of life when I was a, a young child when I would get bloody noses every day. Just my nose would start bleeding. Right? It was crazy. It was anytime I would get in the shower, anytime the wa- wa- weather would get too hot, anytime I would touch my nose, which I, you know, as kids pick our nose a lot, anytime I would pick my nose, it would just start bleeding like a fountain. I couldn't stop it. So what would I do? I would get my hands, I'd cover it up, and it would look all scary. And so I would get a towel, and I would put a towel on my face, I don't know how many white towels we had to throw away because when I would come out of the shower, they were stained with blood. And so I would tell my parents about it and they would get upset and they would say, let's pray. Let's pray. And they would pray and we would pray together. They'd say, in the name of Jesus, may these bloody noses stop. And then one day, uh, they just stopped. It stopped bleeding. And even now, for the past 35 years of my life since I was a kid, I think about that. And no matter how much I pick my nose, it won't bleed anymore. I feel like God was planting in my heart at a young age this understanding of faith that was passed on through my parents. There'd be times, I don't know if you're like this, when it would rain outside, my legs would get really, really, really sore, and they would start hurting, and, and I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. And I'd go to my parents' room, and I'd cry, and I'd say, my legs are hurting, and they would say, it must be about to rain, and then they would hit my legs, and it would, I don't know if they were intentionally trying to do that, but they would hit it so hard that I would start crying and no longer thinking about the pain that was there, but the pain that they inflicted, and it would hurt even more, and I'd say, oh, stop it, it feels fine now, and then the pain would come back again, and so they said, let's pray. And whenever they would pray, whenever we would pray, my muscle aches would go away, and at a young age, I'd begin to understand there's a God who cares about me. When I was in fourth grade, up until that point in time, I was a C and D student, which, you know, if you're Asian, C means can't come home, and D means don't come back to our family. I don't know what it means, but C's and D's are really bad. A means average. And so I remember coming home with C's and D's on my report cards, and, and my parents were like at their wit's end. They're like, you got to go see a tutor. None of these things, none of these things change. And so uh, we were watching TV one day, and there's this televangelist, and it said, if you need help, pray, uh, call this number. And so I called that number. My parents said, call them and, and ask them to pray for you. And so I did. And after that, for the next five quarters, from a fifth, uh, for end of uh, fourth grade into fifth grade, uh, actually end of fifth grade and sixth grade, whatever it was, but for the next 35 grades, I got 34 A's and one B. My parents were like, this is a miracle. And at the youngest age, my parents were trying to tell me you need to understand there's a God who cares about you. And if there's ever a need, you need to go to God in prayer. My parents didn't give me everything that I wanted. But I think they gave me everything that I needed in speaking faith into my life. I know some of you, your, your faith story is not like that. That's okay. What matters now, okay, what matters now is that you have the baton of faith squarely passed into your hands. And the question is, what are you going to do with that baton? Are you going to pass it to the next generation? Because that is the best and the greatest and the most important inheritance that you can pass on to those who come behind you. If you look at what it says in in verse uh, 20, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. Okay, by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. 22, by faith Joseph, when his end was near. Each of these guys, each of these patriarchs are at the end of their lives. And what matters at the end of your life is typically what matters, right? Because what you say with your dying words are important because after you die, you can't say anything after that. And so no matter what their faith looked like, these three men, you look at their lives, you read their accounts in Genesis, they were misfits. They were not paragons of faith. They were not these these amazing people of faith. In fact, they did really stupid things. Isaac, just like his dad, sold out his wife. He, 
I don't know if I can say this, but he pimped out his wife to the king of Abimelech. He said, hey, listen, they're going to they're gonna kill me if they see how beautiful you are. And so he said, act like you're my sister so that they can take you and do whatever they want. This is Isaac. Jacob was a conniving, stealing, deceitful dude. He tricked his dad, stole the birthright. Stole. These guys are not the, the pinnacle of faith that we think they are. And yet at the end of their lives, when the chips were down, they said, this is what matters. The most important thing that I need to pass on to the next generation is faith in the God of the Bible, the God of Scriptures. Because you see, at the end of the day, this is what really matters. Okay, can I ask you if you're a parent, what matters most in your life for them to get into the hall of faith or to get into the hall of fame in some kind of a sport? What matters more to you? What matters more that they have an inheritance in heaven or that they gain acceptance into Harvard? What matters most to you as parents? That they make the honor roll or that they become men and women of honor because of their faith in Christ? And as you live, if you're not a parent, that's okay. You are always one step ahead of a people behind you. What matters to you as you interact with them? Do you think about, I need to pass on faith to them, or do you think about how I want them to think that I'm the prettiest sister in the church, or I want them to think about I have the coolest car in the church, or I'm the best athlete in the church, or I'm the most popular at my school? What matters to you as you think about what you're passing on to the next generation? Because there's a sad reality that the, that the book of Judges talks about. It says that one generation that lived for God, the very next generation, they didn't have faith because the first generation did not pass it on to the next generation. It's tragic, and it's sad, but you know what? It's happening all over the world. You think about 10 years ago, 10 years ago, the country that was the marquee country, nation of faith in the world, was South Korea. 10 years ago, seven of the 10 largest churches are in South Korea. The greatest mission sending force outside of the United States of America is this tiny little peninsular nation, South Korea. But now, 10 years later, there is a generation, your generation, my generation, that is utterly in crisis. There's a vacuum of faith within this generation of people because for whatever reason, that first generation did not connect faith to the next generation. And worldliness is rampant within South Korea, and it breaks the hearts of those who see that nation. The same thing is happening in Korean American churches in America. You can see thousands of people in a first-generation Korean church in America, but the second generation is the largest ones, probably number in the hundreds. Why? For whatever reason, that faith is not connecting. I was, I was speaking out in, in Dallas, Texas, to a group of first-generation elders and pastors, and I told them to imagine what do you dream the church 30 years later, your church is going to look like in 30 years. And I said, here's what the national trends are saying. If you don't do something about the next generation now, there will be no church. Your church will not be in existence in 30 years. I'm not saying that to try and fear monger. I'm saying that's the current trend right now because people are not intentionally taking the faith and latching it on to the people who come behind them. What is it that we're trying to pass on to the generations to come behind? This is, this is extremely, for people like Eugene who came up here and thanked those of you who serve VBS, this is personal to all of us and it, it ought to be personal for all of us because we have children and we want there to be a church when our kids get to teenage years and get to their 20s and 30s and 40s. The most important thing that we can pass on to the generations to come is our faith. I, we have people in, in, in our church, we have a, a, a 
Actually, I don't want to say names, but um, I asked a few of our teachers who are teaching our youth ministry, who are serving in VBS, I said, why do you do it? And this one, this one uh, sister in our church, she's got a full-time job. She's at a full-time graduate degree program, and she chooses to teach uh, our youth ministry. I said, why do you do it? And this is what she said. I said, it's my way of connecting with the next generation, understanding them, and because I know it matters to have older people in life. I learn from them all the time, and God uses our time together to teach me, shape me, and give me joy. Keeps me young, and I find it fascinating that they actually want my involvement in their life. Did you know that the generation next want our involvement in their lives? They need our involvement in their lives. I asked somebody uh, who was teaching at, at VBS, one of our, our, our graduating seniors, said, why'd you do it? Because I, I, I would come into VBS at the end of the day, and I would see our people. Like, I'm so proud of our beautiful little and not-so-little harvesters as they serve and as they take care of kids, and it's just a beautiful thing. But at the end, come 3 o'clock, they're like dead tired. They're like passed out. Like, feed me, give me something. I said, why do you do it? Why do you do it? This is what one of our graduating seniors said. I think even though it is tiring and difficult at times, it's simple. I think ultimately it's because of the gospel. When I think about myself and God's faithfulness to me, some of the most powerful ways he's revealed more of himself and his love for me is through the investment that others made into me through VBS Vacation Bible School, that's our kids' program, or even now through older brothers and sisters who have invested time, money, and resources into me ultimately to reflect to me more of his love, even though I'm broken and or wasn't the easiest person to love. I think when I see the kids, I see a lot of myself in them too. Kids who will grow and mature and are ultimately people who need to know the gospel to have life just like me. And to think he gives me the privilege and opportunity of being a vessel through which that comes. I feel like it would be silly for me to pass that up if I've experienced firsthand how powerful that can be. They could end up seeing the beauty of the gospel and being the ones who are volunteering at VBS or heading up our student leadership team or leading worship. People who love Jesus and his body bringing the gospel into their schools or people of prayer who bring light into an increasingly dark and broken world. And then they said, ooh, sorry, long answer to a simple question. (laughs) But a simple question that has a lengthy answer because there's a conviction within that heart that I need to pass on my faith to the next generation before I go to college. It's the one thing I can do, and I want to do that before I go. So what do you do? What do you see as you look at the generation next? The first thing we see is that faith is the most important inheritance that we can pass on. The second thing that we see is that faith chooses to bless and sees the best in the next generation. It chooses to bless and sees the best in the next generation. One of the, uh, one of the not so subtle secrets of life is that the older you get, <laughs> the weirder young people get, right? Don't, don't you feel that way? I think about some of our young people and I'm like, and I wish I could be like them sometimes, but man, like, I don't understand, like, why their pants are so tight. Like, why do they wear, how can they wear things like that? It doesn't make any sense to me. You can't even put your phone inside of your pocket when it's that tight. And I think about some of the things that they like doing, like they, I I don't know. Like, so many young people want to get tattoos. They're like, that's weird, man. That's like crazy. Why do you want to do that? 
I don't know, some of the, they like fidget spinners and things like that. Why? Why do you like these things? The older we get, the stranger young people get. It's just, we're different. Nothing wrong with fidget spinners, nothing wrong with skinny jeans, I guess, but it's just different, and it's weird to people like me who are older. It's just, it's just different. And then there are things that we see as older people who gaining experience through the wisdom of life. We look at some of the choices that our young people make, and we get sad. Why do they do things like that? Why do they make the choices that they do? Why do they do silly things? Why do they choose instant gratification over delaying gratification? Why do they choose to harm themselves when they're so beautiful and so wonderfully made in the image of God? You can look at young people and you can see a bunch of different things. When Isaac and Jacob and Joseph looked at the coming generations, and these, their kids and their grandkids were whack. But they did some crazy stuff some weird stuff. And yet, what does it say they did at the end of their lives? It says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. And we could do a bunch of different things, but what do you see when you look at the next generation? Right, these people, even though their children, their grandchildren were misfits, they said, we're going to choose to bless them. We're going to choose to speak life into them rather than to look at them and say, oh, you know what, your hair is ugly and your pants are too tight and and these things that you do are weird. They chose to bless them. The reality 4,000 years ago is the same as it is today. The older generation will always look at the younger generation and say they're different. But what we do with those differences makes all the difference in the world. About 16 years ago, I knew this youth pastor came down to this little, little church in this small town and um, when he got to that church, he had this, like, grew this, like, big, old, ugly, nasty-looking beard. It looked like, uh, I mean, it was before everyone started getting beards now, like, having a beard is hip, but back then nobody had it, and so it wasn't that cool. But it was unkempt, and it was crazy. And at that little conservative church, there was a group of elders, elderly people, older people in that church, who looked at that youth pastor, and they said, oh, look at that guy. He's so bad. That guy's so evil. He's so wicked, so disrespectful, so ugly. What kind of a pastor looks like that? And so they went to the senior pastor, and they said, Pastor, you need to get rid of that guy. Either tell him to get rid of his beard or get rid of him. And the pastor said, okay, I'm going to do that. Then he said, but one condition. After I fire him, are you going to go and you're going to preach to the group that he's ministering to? And they said, oh, pastor, what are you talking about? Don't be silly. He said, these are the people that he's ministering to, and they think it's okay. <clears throat> said, okay, if you're not going to preach to them, are you going to go to these kids' birthday parties? These young children, their students, are you going to go to their basketball games? Are you going to go and, and go to their birthday parties and drive them around and play with them, and, and you spend time with them on Friday nights? Are you going to do that? They said, oh, what are you talking about, Pastor? What are you talking about? He said, if you're not going to do it, then shut up. Because he's reaching a generation that you are unable, unequipped, and quite frankly, unwilling to reach. So unless you're willing to do that, then you shut your mouth, change your attitude, repent, and you pray for him. At uh, 16 years ago, senior pastor was uh, Pastor Inky. And I'm so glad that he didn't give up on me because of what I looked like back then. He could have said, you're right, you're right. This guy's weird, he's disrespectful, he needs to at least trim that thing, make it not look like a squirrel on his, on his chin. He should do something, but he said, no, I believe in him, and I believe in what he's doing to reach a generation for the go- with the gospel of Christ. 
What do you see when you look at the next generation? What do you see when you look at these people who other people would say, oh, you know what? Why are they, why they got holes on those parts of their faces? Right? That's weird. You're not supposed to have that many holes in your ear or that many holes in your nose or whatever. Why do they have that kind of tattoo? That's weird. I hope it's henna. I hope it's going to rub off after three days. No, it's been there for like a year. No, oh my goodness. What are you going to do? What do you do when you see people like that? Here's what faith does. It realizes that the church is always one generation from extinction, and it says, I choose to bless instead of curse. I choose to see the best in them and to move towards them, to mentor them and to guide them and to help them because as one of our teachers said, I learned so much from them and they need me. We need each other. It's not just that they need us older people. Our younger people don't just need us. We need them. You know how many of our, uh, uh, one of our, our, two of our members, David Fong, Margaret Fong, I, I don't usually talk about people um, but obviously this is not in my, in my manuscript. But they said, when we first came, we are like the older people, the oldest ones in our congregation, but we feel young. Others people say, we feel young when we come. We feel alive. We need the younger generation as much as they need us. And it says, by faith, they blessed the sons and the grandsons because they knew, man, this is what we need. So we talk about this word blessing a lot. Oh, <laughs> bless you, bless you, I'm sorry. Oh, bless your heart. But this word blessing actually has such a deep and significant meaning. You know how important words are? Words that were spoken over you from someone in a position of authority? How those words gave you life. Conversely, you know how those words spoken from someone in authority robbed you of life and stripped you of the sense of dignity that you felt you deserved as a child of God, and it's hurting you, and it's hindering you. Offhand comments that people say, or things that you wished someone had said to you that they didn't say, right? this is the idea of blessing, and each of us is created with a longing for blessing. So can I tell you, right? Someone, the, the reason why we act the way that we do, can we be honest, a lot of that, is because of the blessing you either have or have not received. It's every one of us is made with a need for that, and it can't be. We can't say this to ourselves. We can't sit there and, uh, D.L., you're beautiful, you're handsome, you're great, you can do it, you're, you're awesome, you're going to change the world. I could do that all I want, but at the end of the day, we need someone from outside of us to speak that into our lives. And there's a psychological theory called the looking glass self that says this, that you will become what the most important person in your life says about you. So when these people, the most significant figure in their lives, their dad, their grandfather, the forebearer of the faith, spoke those words of blessing into their lives, and it shaped their destiny. Can I ask you, parents, as you talk to your children, how many of the, what's the ratio of blessing words versus discouraging words? You're shaping the soul and the destiny of that generation. Teachers, as you teach your students, as you teach the next generation, children's ministry, what's the race? John Gottman is a relationship expert. He said this is, in order to have a marriage that lasts, okay, I'm just talking about marriage. Okay, I'm not talking about souls of children here. Marriage, the ratio in order for a marriage to last, simply last, five words of blessing to every one word of discouragement to make it last. Okay, what's your ratio? In order to have a marriage that thrives, 
20 to 1. Now think about that. How's your marriage doing? How's your parenting game doing? And a lot of it is just we don't know any better. But that's why we come to hear the Word of God. and We hear what God's Word says. And we need to begin to change the ratios if we want to see a generation rise up to take their place in selfless faith. I see that. Some of us see that. We long for that. We're praying for that. We would give, we would, we would give up sleep and we would give up time. We'd give up energy in order to see that. But we need to see the best in the next generation. We need to choose to bless them instead of whatever it is that uh, is the opposite of that. That's the second thing. Last thing. Last thing we see. Last thing we see is that faith passes on faith as long as you have breath. As long as you have breath with your dying breath, these men sought to pass on their faith. Do you have a bucket list? Do you have a bucket list of things you want to do before you kick the bucket? What do you want to do? I asked Olive, what are some things that people want to do? She said, oh... People want to watch you 2 in concert live. People want to stand in two places at once. Um, what else? Did people want to go bungee jumping or I don't know what they want to do. Uh, uh, we had some friends who said uh, they love playing Frisbee, and they said <laughs> this is their bucket list thing. They said we want to throw a Frisbee on every continent in the world. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I would have never thought of that myself, but that's cool. I mean, to each his own. What's on your bucket list? Before you die, this is what I want to do. This is what the patriarch said. When on that day when their strength is failing, the end draws near and their time has come. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph. He said, I've only got a few breaths left. And with that breath I've got until my dying day, I want to pass on faith to the next generation. This is what it says, verse 22. Spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. You, uh, maybe you, you don't remember the story of Joseph, but Joseph was, uh, became the prime minister of Egypt. Okay, rags to riches stories. He got disowned by his brothers, thrown into a pit. Told, uh, his brothers told his dad, who loved his son so much, he said, your son is dead. They're like, oh, why should we let him die? We can't get money for him. So they sold him. He went from the pit to, uh, where did he go? Potiphar's wife and all that place. Potiphar got thrown into prison and finally ended up at the palace. And he's like this number two in command over the most powerful nation in the world. And so Joseph is living in Egypt. Kids grow up in Egypt. He's a baller. He's the man. And it says when his, with his dying breath, when his end was near, he spoke about the exodus of the Israelites that had not yet happened and gave instructions about his bones. He said, don't bury me in Egypt. Bury me in the promised land. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, God promised my forefather Abraham that one day you're going to have a land, the promised land. And even though I don't see that, even though we don't see that, it's coming. God is going to be faithful to his promise, so don't give up that hope. In fact, here's how much I want you to cling to the promise. Take my bones with you and make sure I get buried in that land of the promise because I know that God will be faithful. 
You know, the dying words of a person are so significant, right? So I remember Jack to Rose as the Titanic was sinking. Never let go, and oh, swooning women. Yeah, I loved you, Jack. I love you. Because we remember the last words of people. Because again, after they're gone, there's nothing left to remember. But here, not only does he speak about the Exodus and where his bones ought to be buried, but what Joseph does, literally it says, he commanded forcefully the people to bury his bones in the promised land. What does that mean? One commentator said it's like he got all of his people around him and he grabbed them by the collar and he shook them and he said, make sure that you bury me in the promised land. You know, when, when, when someone says something, right, their dying breath, oh, bury me in the promised land. You remember that, right? But even more so when they say that with such conviction and with such passion and they grab you by the collar and they start shaking you and saying, make sure that I'm buried in the promise. You remember the things that are spoken. But can I tell you, you remember them even better, not simply because they're dying words, not simply because there's conviction, but you remember them best when those words of conviction are spoken and the same message in death is the message that they preached in their life. <coughs> That's right, some of you, and some of you who are young, I'm sorry, this is all about like this intergenerational message, but there's a movie called Braveheart where this man named William Wallace fights for the freedom of Scotland. <coughs> and at the end of the movie, as he's dying, he cries this one word in this primal shout on his deathbed. Whoa, that was pretty good. Just freedom, right? Freedom. <coughs> and people remember that, and you replay that video over and over and over. It wouldn't be quite the same if he had cried out, love, right? or happiness. Right? You would remember that because it's his deathbed confession, but the reason we remember that cry of freedom is because all of his life was spent living out that message, his fist, Amazing speech where he's painted in blue and he's riding around shaking his spear and he says, they can take our lives, but they can never take our freedom. In other words, the next generation will hear what you say, but they will become who you are. This is what teachers say. Much more, so much more will be caught than taught. I remember my parents not just telling me to pray, but praying with me. And that's what I learned. And so I remember when Manny was a baby and Elijah was, was tiny. It was just the two of them. I remember sitting there, we were holding hands, we were praying. And as we were praying, Manny started making this groaning noise. Said, mm. I said, Manny, stop that. We're praying. And she thought it was so funny. As I continued the prayer, and she started making this groaning noise, and then Elijah, hearing his sister, older sister, thought that was so funny, so he started saying, mmm, and they started laughing. I said, Manny, stop. Okay, stop. Daddy's praying. Okay, I don't want you to mess around. So we closed our eyes, kept praying, and she kept saying, mmm, mmm. I said, Manny, okay, for the last time, stop. And she's like, Daddy, but that's how you pray. <laughs> I said, Daddy, that's what you do when someone else is praying. You say, mmm, mmm. <laughs> and I understood, again, that so much more 
is caught than taught. They're watching our lives. They're looking at our lives. They're seeing what we do. They're seeing who we are. We will teach what we know, but we will reproduce who we are in the next generation. Right? So who are you at the end of the day? Because this is who they are becoming. And I think about these things that I think about all over again. I'm just convicted of our need to invest in the next generations. To not just be together, but to be intentional. Because, you know, the sad thing is simply having faith and being together is not enough as if faith is transmitted or caught by osmosis. There's got to be intentionality. So some of you really need to say, as you search your heart and pray, Lord, how does this look? What does this look like? Do I need to begin teaching our children's ministry? Do I need to begin uh, teaching our youth ministry? Do I need to start one by one calling up younger sisters or younger brothers and start taking them out and, and just hearing their story and sharing my story of how you've been faithful to me? Because all of us have something to give. All of us have something to give. And I think about those of us in here who feel like, you know, I don't have anything to give. I barely make it. I barely make it from, from week to week. Can I, have you ever had this time where you, you were so impressed by somebody's faith? You were encouraged by someone's faith. You were challenged by someone's faith, and you walked up to, maybe they're going through sickness. Maybe someone had passed away. Maybe they're going through a rejection letter, or they got laid off, or financially things are just difficult. And you said to them, hey, you know what? I'm so blessed by you as you worship, even in the midst of, even in the midst of hardship. Now, my faith is challenged by you. And they look back at you, and they said, Really? No, I, I don't even, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just fumbling along, bumbling along, stumbling along. I'm not doing anything. I'm just, yeah, but still, that faith is challenging me to no end. Isn't it interesting how God uses that kind of broken, messed up, failing forward, falling forward, tripping up kind of people like them, like you, like me, like Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and then he says, you know what? Even though your faith is not complete, it's not perfect, it's failed, it's flawed, it's messed up, and he takes them and he throws them into the hall of faith and says, this faith is going to change the world. That's what God does. All we need to do, say, okay, I'm going to give it a go, God. I'm going to go. I'm going to give it a shot. You see, I was preaching in Seattle about six years ago, at a church, and uh, they asked me, can you talk about the biblical basis for intergenerational ministry to each other? And so um, I was preaching that, that, that Sunday at their church, and it was about maybe Thursday or something, and it's just the whole time, I know the idea that I'm talking about is I'm praying, Lord, give me uh, thoughts, give me insight. And, and at the time, uh, our daughter Manny was about three, um, and we're out, in, and Elijah had just been born. We're out there, and I'm, I'm at the Seattle Zoo. We're hanging out. Uh, my nephew and uh, niece were there. I think no, nephew wasn't born, but niece was there, Tabitha, and she was about four years old. She's kind of like rock star little girl. And so we're walking through the zoo, and she just decides to, to, to bust out the song that she heard. It's Toby Mac's song, right? Toby Mac, Tabitha becomes Taddy Mac, and she starts busting out, and she says, I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. And immediately as I heard that, it felt like God dropped something in my spirit. He said, there it is right there. It's the cry of a generation. It's the cry of a generation. 
I don't want your toys. I don't want these magazines. I don't want these clothes. I don't want these boyfriends. I don't want any. I don't want, don't give me all of these things. Just give me Jesus because he's all that matters. I don't want to gain the whole world and get to the end of it all and lose my soul. I don't want to get to the end of everything and say, yeah, I made it to Harvard. I've got a million dollars in my bank account. I stand before God and I've got bankruptcy in my faith. I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. What are you investing into into the next generation, my friends? Hear the cry of a generation because it's the cry not only of the coming generation but of every generation. And God heard. And so many years back, he sent his son Jesus to come into the world. And if there was ever a person who lived and breathed and loved the next generation, it was Jesus, in a culture that said children do not matter, that they can be routinely aborted and thrown on the trash heap for as simple a reason as they were a girl. Jesus said, no, children have dignity, they have worth, they have value. And he welcomed them in, even when his disciples said, send the children away. Jesus said, no, 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 bring them to me, bring them to me. It was Jesus who said to all of these grown-up people who thought they knew what it meant to have faith. He said, no, 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 no. Listen, unless you become like a child, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he used a child to rebuke these know-it-all adults. It was Jesus who said, oh my goodness, 5,000 people, what is going to happen? They're hungry. What are we going to do? What can I do in order to give them a living picture That in the world that Jesus came to bring, there will be no more hunger. There will be no more sickness. No more people living in poverty. What is it going to be? He takes a little boy and he heralds him as a champion of the faith. Jesus believed in the next generation. He believed in you and he believed in me. And with his dying breath, instead of cursing those who crucified him, it was my sin that nailed him there until it was accomplished. With his dying breath, Jesus chose to bless. And those words were powerful because they were backed up by a lifetime of blessing people who were undeserving and unworthy of the blessing of God. And to such a people like you and me, Jesus shed his blood so that we could say, by virtue of him saying, I'm going to save their soul even if it means that I lose everything so that we could stand here and say, I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. I've got Jesus, and he's all I need. Let's pray. When I was called to come to Orlando from Virginia, 2001, I was told that I would be working with college students. And then when I was introduced to the church, I was introduced as the youth pastor at KPCO. And I was livid. The ultimate bait and switch. Because I was scared of young people. I didn't understand their culture. I didn't understand their language. I didn't understand why they did the things that they did. And yet God reminded me that our young people don't need someone who's cool, don't need someone who's hip, doesn't need someone who speaks 
using the language and the vocabulary that they use. They need someone who will say, follow me as I follow Jesus. That's what the coming generations need out of you, my friends. If you're a sixth grader, fourth graders, third graders, second graders, five-year-olds need that. If you're a high schooler, your middle school brothers and sisters need that. If you're a college student, your youth brothers and sisters need that. If you're an adult, coming generations need that. All you need to do is be following Jesus and then call someone to say, hey, follow me. At the end of the day, I just want to show people Jesus. That's it. Can we make a commitment? Can we renew a commitment right now? Lord, I don't want to see the church in extinction in the next generation. Lord, I want to see faith arise within our next generation. I see by faith a generation rising up to take their place with selfless faith. Do you see that? Eyes of faith. Eyes that look are common, but eyes that see are rare. Pray for eyes of faith. Let's make a commitment to the coming generations, to our children, to their children, to a generation yet unborn. Let's pray for a few moments. Let's pray for our youth ministry. Pray for our children's ministry. Pray for our church. Lord, may we pass the baton well in every season of life. May we do that for your glory. Let's pray together for a couple moments. Let's really pray honestly, earnestly. Jesus, I need you. Lord, help me. I want to be a difference maker for the generation to come that they might see Christ in me. Let's pray together for a few moments. I'll pray for us and then we'll continue to respond through our worship and our offerings. for our children. Lord, raise up my children. They don't need to go to Harvard if they're going to lose their soul. They don't need to go to Stanford if they're going to lose their soul. God, they need Jesus. And only the work of the Holy Spirit can awaken faith within them. Let's not give them everything that the world says they need to have. Let's give them the one thing that they need. Let's pray for the children, our children. If you're a teacher, pray for your students. If you're Whomever you are, let's begin to pray for the coming generations. Lord, raise up men and women of faith. Lord, do this for your glory. Let's pray for another half a minute, then I'll pray on our behalf.
Father in heaven, a couple weeks ago we saw on our stage here a group of young people singing and dancing and shouting and yelling that Jesus is alive. We saw the youngest of children reciting scripture that said that God is alive and that he loves us. Lord, we thank you that you've planted seeds of vision within us so that we might see a generation rising up to take their place. God Almighty, we pray that you would give us faith to believe and then faith to act upon what you've given to us. We pray that we would not just be a group of people stuck together as ping pong balls bouncing back and forth, but that we would deeply form multiple webs and multiple streams of interconnected relationships, the older to the younger, the younger to the older, so that as webs of intergenerational relationships are formed, that our church would arise and together, hand in hand, march through the land for the glory of Jesus' name. Help us to be that kind of a church, countercultural, revolutionary, living for the glory of God above all else, to win our world for Christ. Thank you so much. May we be faithful to the God who will forever be faithful to us. In Jesus' name we pray.